0: In 1856, the now famous preacher, 22-year-old Charles Spurgeon, was being used by God to do a remarkable work there in the city of London. The young husband with infant twin sons back at home, every week when he looked out, he saw a crowd overflowing there as he stood to preach in the new Park Street Chapel. And the church soon decided that uh, the place was so full they needed to rent out public places so that they could renovate their facilities and have more room for more people. And on October 19th, 1856, over 10,000 people gathered together in the Surrey Gardens Music Hall there in London to hear God's Word proclaimed. But no sooner had the service begun than tragedy struck. Cries from the back soon began to break out. Fire! The balconies are falling. The galleries are giving way. And in that chaos that followed as 10,000 people tried to exit the building all at once, unspeakable tragedy unyielded itself, unfolded uh, before the eyes of the young Spurgeon. He watched as people trampled one another as they were trying to safely make an exit. When it was all said and done, seven people had died. An even larger number of people were in critical condition, uh, with 28 of them in critical condition, many more even injured. And the sorrow was almost too much for the young preacher. He almost never preached again. For days he was inconsolable. He couldn't stop weeping. He had watched the panic unfold before his very eyes as he tried to give the direction from the platform. He felt the weight of it all on his shoulders. But even worse, The newspapers were blaming him for all that had happened. How could he dare to preach to that many people at one time? What an ego. What pride. That's what they were saying. But here's what's worst of all. There was no fire. It was all a lie. They were never quite sure where that lie came from. The satanic spread of false statements led to an almost incalculable damage. The church was rocked. Lives were lost. And people were wounded all because of a lie. Well, word has reached Paul that there's a lie spreading in the church at Thessalonica. It was rocking the church. It was causing almost incalculable damage. People are being wounded, and he wasn't quite sure where the lie was coming from. But Paul writes to his beloved church and to us as well that he might have clarity, that we might have clarity in times of confusion and comfort in times of chaos. So if you found your place in God's word in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, would you stand for the reading of God's Word? 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing, because they refused to love the truth and so be saved." Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Brothers and sisters, these startling words are God's Word. And the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the Word of our God stands forever. You may be seated as I pray. O Lord, May we delight in your word. Would you teach us your ways? May we meditate on your precepts. May we fix our eyes on your ways. Open our eyes that we might behold wondrous things out of your word. We pray this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Paul gets to the point. One of the main reasons that he's writing this letter, and it's a subject that we often stay away from, It's the future our doctrine of the, the end times, of last things. Back in his first letter, Paul had written much about the future. He had written about what we call the rapture in chapter 4, how Jesus Christ will deliver us from the wrath that is to come. And he wrote about that time of great tribulation on earth, also known as the day of the Lord, written about in chapter 5 of his first letter. You see, Paul wasn't embarrassed to speak about the future to young Christians, young believers. He openly taught them about the end times. And we might think that they had a lot of questions because Paul's teaching was perhaps a bit complicated, and so they had questions about what he was saying. Well, there is great confusion in Thessalonica, as this second letter reveals, but it's not because Paul's teaching was unclear, but it's because false teachers came in behind Paul and taught the young church False doctrine. Look there in verses 1 and 2. Now, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Based on these first two verses, the, the first step that we must take in finding clarity in times of confusion. Don't be shaken. Don't be shaken. Like a tree shaking in the wind, the Thessalonian Christians have been shaken in their minds' understanding of what Paul has previously taught them. Paul gave them a healthy, biblical understanding of the end times and of the future, but a wolf has crept into the church and is preying upon the health of the spiritual flock. Word had gotten back to Paul that someone had creeped in and yelled fire in the theology of the church, and they're being trampled upon by fear. They're in a constant state of anxiety because somebody has told them that the day of the Lord has already come. And Paul's not entirely clear about where this teaching came from. Is it from someone claiming to have a prophetic word or a spirit, as he says there in verse 2? Or did someone preach a sermon, a spoken word that led to the confusion? Perhaps even worse, someone has sent a letter that appears to be from Paul himself and is teaching the exact opposite of what Paul had taught the Thessalonian church. Paul taught them that Christ would rescue them from the wrath that is to come. And now someone is writing in Paul's name that the day of the Lord, the wrath, has already come. Well, why would this upset them? Perhaps we need to remind ourselves of what the day of the Lord is. The Old Testament prophets spoke often about a coming day of the Lord. It will be a day of wrath, a day of doom. Now to be sure, Jesus told us that all believers will have difficulties in this life. We'll have tribulations in this life. We'll have suffering in this life. We we understand that. We experience that every day. But all of the normal sufferings and tribulations of this life are nothing in comparison to the great coming day of God Almighty. The day when His wrath will be poured out on this earth in a way unlike we've ever seen before. But Paul told the Thessalonians in his first letter that God has not destined us for the day of wrath. He praised them in that first letter for their faith in Christ and their steadfast hope in Jesus Christ who delivers us from the wrath to come. And Paul wrote about that hope that they had back in chapter 4 of the first letter saying that all who are in Christ when the Lord appears in the clouds will be caught up together with Him in the clouds and so we will always be with the Lord. Now we commonly call this the rapture and Christians disagree about the timing of this event, but what we can't disagree about is that the word appears in the text. The Greek word harpazo, the, the snatching away, the rapture, whatever you want to call it, it's there in 1 Thessalonians 4. And We've got to figure out when it's going to happen. But as you remember, Paul wrote all of those things about the future in his first letter. He wrote it for their comfort. For those of you who are with us during our study of 1 Thessalonians, Do you remember how often Paul said, comfort one another with these words? He said it many times in the first letter. But now someone is sowing confusion rather than comfort there in the church. Someone is spreading chaos rather than clarity. And so the doctrine of the future, our Christian understanding of the last days, which ought to give us comfort, it ought to give us confidence in Christ, it was actually sparking fear and anxiety there in the Thessalonian church. Maybe you can understand that. Perhaps even just a mention of the end times gets your blood pressure up a little bit. Maybe the whole discussion makes you just a little bit nervous. There are some Christians who who heard the Bible taught in a discouraging way, perhaps even back when they were a child, and it's really uh, caused them to always approach the discussion of the end times with a little bit of fear and trepidation. Now they don't want to discuss it as adults. Well, to our children who are here this morning, I want you to know that the future should not scare you, and your pastor is not here to scare you. And for the adults who are here who may not want to discuss the future very much, the future should not scare you, and your pastor is not here to scare you. Yes, there will be dark, difficult days ahead. Go read 2 Timothy chapter 3. But our focus is to be on the King who is coming, not on the chaos and of the confusion of this world. And so the first step that we must take in finding comfort and clarity is simply not be shaken. Don't be shaken. Well, that's easier said than done. Can we all agree with that? So Paul keeps going. He gives us more. Don't be shaken, verses 1 and 2, but also verses 3 and 4, don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. You see, being shaken and stirred up into an anxious state, that's, that's bad enough. But to be deceived about the day of the Lord, that's even worse. Worse. To be duped and misled into believing that the day of the Lord has actually already taken place, that it's actually already come, that would be far worse. And so Paul exhorts them, don't be deceived. Look at verse 3 and following. "'Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. Now the Thessalonians should not be deceived because there's at least two events that must take place before the coming day of the Lord. Paul's going to show them that these things haven't taken place yet, so therefore they shouldn't be upset. They shouldn't be anxious. He says, the day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. What is the rebellion or the apostasy? Or the falling away, as the King James expresses it. Paul is saying there will be an intentional abandoning of the faith that was once professed. There will be a great falling away from the day of the Lord. Well, what is this falling away going to look like? Well, it hasn't happened yet, so we don't exactly know. You can look all throughout church history, and I can show you through the graveyards of church history, are littered with the bones of those who fell away from the faith that they once professed. They once proclaimed the true gospel of Jesus Christ, but they fell away from the gospel that they once held dear. The history of the entire Roman Catholic Church could be labeled falling away. Entire denominations have fallen away from the faith that they once preached and they once proclaimed. It's far too common now to hear Christian celebrities tell their deconversion story, which is a complete abandonment of the faith, once for all, delivered to the saints. They've become apostates, and they've fallen away from the faith. But again, the Bible tells us that this will happen all throughout the history of the church. There will be many people who have the appearance of godliness, but deny its power. Again, Second Timothy but Paul is saying here that the day will not come unless the rebellion comes first, not just a rebellion. He's looking to a specific event in the future, the falling away, the apostasy, unless that comes first, not just any falling away, not just any old apostasy, there's a particular specific rebellion that's coming in the future. And it seems to be connected with this man of lawlessness, this man of lawlessness. So don't be deceived. Because the day of the Lord will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed. The man of sin, the man, the son of perdition. He's called lots of names in the Bible, but you most likely probably refer to him often as the Antichrist. The Antichrist. And we get that language from the Apostle John. That's the language that John uses in his letters and in the book of Revelation. But Paul never calls him the Antichrist. He calls this the man of lawlessness, the man of sin. John warned us that even as the Antichrist is coming, there are many Antichrists already here. And in the same way, Paul warned us that there are many evil, lawless, sinful people. But he said there's coming a day when one particular, specific, real human being, a man of lawlessness... A son of destruction will be revealed or unveiled. And when he's revealed, he will oppose and exalt, keep going in the verse, he will oppose and exalt himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. My goodness, what does this mean? Well, Jesus tells us that to understand this, we need to go look at the book of Daniel. Jesus said in his Famous sermon in Matthew 24 that we need to look back at the book of Daniel. And some of you are studying Daniel in Sunday school. And I asked your teacher right before we came up here where you were at in the book of Daniel. And you were at a prime spot to ask him all of the questions that I leave unanswered in the sermon. All right? So if you don't have a Sunday school home, George's class is the place you want to be the next few Sundays. Because he's going to help you with so many things that I'm not going to have time to answer this morning. But Daniel prophesied about this a long time ago. And according to Daniel, this world leader who's coming, he will demand ultimate allegiance as if he is God above all else. This satanic antichrist, he will desecrate the holy temple of God. That's what Daniel tells us. Do you have more questions about all of this? I certainly do. But we dare not begin to examine The individual leaves on the tree before we see the big forest, the portrait that Paul is painting for us. Remember the big idea, what he's trying to tell us. We can have clarity even in times of confusion. And even if someone has already spread the false teaching that the day of the Lord has already come, the Thessalonians can have confidence that it has not in fact come because the rebellion has not happened yet and the man of lawlessness has not yet come. That's the resounding melody of this passage, even as there's definitely some intricate harmony in the verses before us. But it is still possible to have clarity by not being shaken, not being deceived, and thirdly, by not forgetting, not forgetting. Look at verse 5, "'Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things?' You see, the Thessalonians already had all they needed to stand firm against false teaching. Paul had already taught them everything they needed to know. They didn't have to be deceived. They didn't have to be shaken. In fact, Paul is a bit shocked that they've so easily fallen prey to this false teacher. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? Now in verse 6, Paul starts reminding them of some of the things that he taught them when he was there with them in person. Things that should have fortified them against these peddlers of false doctrine. But here's the catch. They know what Paul's referring to because they were there when he taught them and we were not. We only have the letter. So it makes things a little difficult to follow as if they haven't already been difficult enough. Look at verse 6. Paul writes, And you know what is restraining him so that he may be revealed in his time. You see, something is restraining this man of lawlessness, this man of sin, from being revealed too early. Something is holding him back from deceiving all the people that he wants to deceive. But actually, as we keep going, we understand it's not just something is restraining him, but it is someone is restraining the man of lawlessness. Keep going in verse 7. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Even as this man of lawlessness has not yet been revealed, the mystery of lawlessness is at work all around us. We see this every day. Sin and lawlessness are at work all around us every day. But it's not as much as it could be if the restrainer were not holding back this man of lawlessness. But we keep going in the verse it says only he who now restrains it will do so until he's out of the way. You see, there's not some magical force or power that's restraining the man of lawlessness from doing his evil deceit now. No, it's a, it's a person. He who now restrains the man of lawlessness. And I believe that it's the Holy Spirit the third person of the Trinity. You see, the Spirit is busy at work keeping, restraining the man of lawlessness, the man of sin, keeping him until that day, even as sin and lawlessness abound all around us this day. Now why is that? Let's think about it. Why is that? So that the man of lawlessness will only be revealed at the right time. The right time. Think back over Jesus's earthly ministry. How many times there were opportunities for the table of events to have been sped up a little bit? Times that people wanted to proclaim Jesus as Messiah and he said, no, keep it to yourself. And there were times that people wanted to come and take Jesus by force and make him king by force. And there were other times when they didn't like what he had to say and they sought to push him off of a cliff and destroy him and even then he just slipped through the crowds. Why? Because his time had not yet come. You see that all throughout the Gospels, that Jesus reminds us that His time had not come, which meant there was a time when He would be revealed, a time when He would be crucified. But make no mistake, neither crucifixion nor coronation were allowed until the appointed hour because the time had not yet come. Nothing will interrupt the king's timetable. In the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son... And in the fullness of time, the Spirit will cease to restrain this man of lawlessness. But make no mistake, it's not the man of sin's timetable that matters. It's all according to the plans of the king. Well, what is this king going to do when the man of sin, the man of lawlessness, is revealed? What will the true Christ do to that cheap imposter, the Antichrist? Well, you sang about it earlier one little word shall fail him." Look at verse 8. Then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of His mouth, and bring to nothing by the appearance of His coming. You see, we can have clarity in times of confusion. We will not be shaken. We will not be deceived. We will not forget that the prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for Him his rage we can endure. Why? Because his doom is sure. One little word will fail him. We saw this just a few weeks ago in Revelation 19. The Open Bible Sunday School class studied that passage this very morning. Christ will return on a white horse and with the blood of His enemies splattered about on His robe, but there's not going to be an actual battle because with one breath from His mouth, one word from the King's mouth, it is finished. The man of lawlessness will be defeated. The one that the world has looked to for peace and security will be unable to save himself. The one who lifts himself up above all earthly authorities and declares himself to be God will actually be brought low by the one who is God. The one who seemed to hold the answer to everything will be brought to nothing. Did you hear that in Isaiah 40 at the beginning of this service? The nations are like the drop of a bucket. They're like dust on the scale. The nations are like nothing before God. They're like less than nothing. How can you have less than nothing? Well, the nations, the enemies of God, are less than nothing to God. And the one who seeks to deceive the nations, this man of lawlessness, will be brought to nothing by the appearance of Christ's coming. Brothers and sisters, if Christ's victory is sure... If he defeats his enemies with the word of his mouth, then why are we so afraid? Why do we spend so much time trying to understand this man of lawlessness rather than focusing on the man of sorrows, the one who has made it possible for us to have victory over death in this life? Why do we get so afraid of the the movement and the saber-rattling of nations, the nations that are nothing before our great God? You see, when we focus on Christ and the victory of His coming, then we don't have to be shaken. We won't be deceived. We won't forget the truth that we already know. We don't have to know every detail of the end times because we know everything that God wants us to know. And this gives us a good moment to, to pause and to think about how we read our Bibles. So often we come to our Bibles asking the questions that God is not trying to answer. There's a lot of questions that we have about this passage and we could take lots of time and try to piece the parts of Scripture together and try to get a pretty good educated guess about what Paul is referring to here in this passage. We could, we could do a whole sermon about uh, the Antichrist and, and what the Bible says about that as a whole. But Paul is building off of his teaching while he was there in Thessalonica and we weren't there for that. So we don't know what he told them, everything he told them about the restrainer. We don't know everything that he told them about the man of lawlessness and the falling away. Did he give them a timeline? A chart? Maybe an alliterated outline? I'm convinced that when the Thessalonian church received this letter, they knew exactly what he was talking about. we don't. Now we need to study the Scriptures. We need to seek to understand all that we can glean from this passage, as much as we can understand about the future. But we don't need to spend so much time fixated on the Antichrist to the neglect of actually studying Christ. We need to be reminded of who Christ is. You see, Paul wasn't trying to give them a chart. He was trying to give them comfort. And Paul wasn't trying to be a psychic with a crystal ball. He was shepherding the saints. And we shouldn't feel at a disadvantage because we can't fill in all the gaps in the Thessalonian conversation because God has given us everything that we need for life and godliness right here in His Word. And in fact, the only way that we can avoid being shaken The only way that we can avoid being deceived, the only way that we can avoid being forgetful is to stay rooted in God's Word. It's then and only then will we have clarity in times of confusion. But there's a warning here at the end of the passage. It's not so much aimed at the saints, even though we learn from it, but it's particularly important for those who do not yet know Christ. In the last four verses, verses 9 through 12, we're told, don't be deluded. Don't be deluded. Now we just saw Christ's victorious coming at the end of verse 8, but at the beginning of verse 9, we're told that that imposter Antichrist, the the cheap substitute known as the man of lawlessness, he too has a coming. Look at verse 9 and following. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing. Make no mistake, the Antichrist is not Satan. But he is empowered by Satan. The Antichrist, the, the man of lawlessness, his appearance, his coming, it will appear to be miraculous. It will appear that he is sent by God, that he is the one the world is waiting on. But everything he does is fake. The man of lawlessness is empowered by that ancient serpent of old who lifted himself above God's law. All the powers, all the signs, all the wonders that the man of sin does, they are false. They're deception. No wonder those who spread lies about the day of the Lord are busy deceiving believers because they're just following in the footsteps of their father, Satan. They're simply mimicking the deceiver who will come, the man of lawlessness. Here's the more tragic part. There are many who will follow Him. There are many who will believe the power and the signs and the wonders are real they will think that the man of lawlessness actually is sent by God. They will think that he is actually God's anointed one. These people are already perishing because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. There will be people in that day who have heard the truth, they've heard the gospel, but they refused to repent. They refused to be saved and they are perishing. But the story gets worse. Look at verses 11 and 12. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. How fickle is the human heart. How deceitfully wicked it truly is. How many of you immediately recoiled at hearing God's Word read to you? God sends them a strong delusion. That can't be right, can it? How could God do that to those poor, innocent people? We immediately put God on trial and we toss out what the verse actually says. You see, there are no poor, innocent people. What did the book say? They had... Pleasure in unrighteousness. They refused to believe the truth. They refused to be saved. They saw the work of the Antichrist and they proclaimed that this was truly the work of God. These are not poor, innocent people. God righteously seals them in their unbelief, just like Pharaoh in Egypt. You remember, over and over, Pharaoh hardened his heart until eventually God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And there will be people on that day who have refused to believe and refused to believe and refused to believe until God sends them a strong delusion and seals them in their unbelief. God is holy and just and He can use even the deception of the Antichrist as an instrument of His perfect judgment. So dear friend, if you're here today and you recognize that you are not in Christ, Stop playing games. Just because we're not in the day of the Lord now doesn't mean that God is any less just today. He is no less holy today than He will be on that day. You have heard the gospel. You hear the call to repent. Turn from your sins and trust Christ today. Look not to the false signs of all who oppose Christ. Look to the purity and the beauty and the reality of Jesus Christ. Only Christ save you. Look to Christ today. Ah, but dear saint, you have no need to fear the judgment of Christ. You're not striving and straining to save yourself. Nothing in our hands we bring. Simply to His cross we cling. And by the glory of Christ's cross, his resurrection. We do not fear the day of the Lord. We do not fear the chaos and the confusion of this world. I assume that most of you did not wake up this morning afraid that you had missed the day of the Lord. I assume that most of you are not losing sleep over the identity of the man of lawlessness. But many of you woke up afraid of something, of chaos, of confusion. That's your life. That's your world. That's not just your world, that's your address. Many of you are stricken by fear. Afraid about that test result that you're waiting to get back. Fearful about finances. Worried about the outcome of an election. And when you get done worrying about one thing, you're afraid that you won't have something else to worry about when that one is done being worried about. Our world is marked by fear. Are you? Are you? You see, if Christ, with just the breath of His mouth, will bring to nothing the man of lawlessness, the Antichrist himself, what do you have to fear? No, dear saint, don't be afraid. Look to Christ today. May it be so. And Let's pray. Our gracious God, we tremble before Your Word. Your justice and Your righteousness and Your splendor overwhelm the strongest among us. May we take refuge in You. May we truly know that the only thing that stands between us and Your righteous judgment is Christ. Father, we seek comfort and strength through Your Son, Jesus Christ. May Your Spirit, who now restrains the man of lawlessness, also restrain our every desire for sin. And may Your Spirit continue to make us more like Jesus Christ. May Your Spirit do His saving work by drawing people even now to Your Son in repentance and faith for Your glory we pray, our Father. It's in the triune name of our God we pray. Amen.